There were bands of men and women who were willing to go out and do the most thankless work for people who they'll never meet and for a cause that won't be of any immediate benefit to oneself. They were willing to make those sacrifices anyway and endure all the animosity and hatred, all to stand up for what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. That, to me, speaks to a depth of character that isn't often seen today in society. It is often the people who aren't well-known, who aren't in front of the camera, who aren't on stage, who tend to fill these roles and not to get any limelight. Those people are the heroes who don't get the recognition they deserve, the bread-and-butter activists who just do it because it's right. Unsung heroes. Throughout history... Whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. That opening quote was the way that Jonathan Van Maren started his chapter eight of his most recent book, Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. You have to get this book. You have to check it out. It is a phenomenal story, which is something we're talking about again today. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show. And once again, I am joined by my wonderful co-host. Hello, Cameron, sir. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks, Peter. Just a quick, quick addendum. That was So Jonathan did start the chapter that way, but that was actually a quote from a guy named Tim Jackson, who was a huge part of the Save the Eighth campaign and the Irish pro-life movement. I know that Jonathan would feel uncomfortable if he was taking credit for words of somebody else. Tim Jackson, an incredible pro-lifer. Um, that you can learn all about in Jonathan's book, Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. I'm doing real well. It is above minus 20 in Calgary, which means that we are back to doing activism, which is what I am all about. I love being able to get out and have conversations with people and talk to them about abortion. I actually had a a funny conversation last night. Um, I was actually doing a fundraising presentation for one of our incoming staff members, and there was a friend of a friend um of the person we were speaking with in the background and they decided to jump in and and voice their concerns about all of our strategy and everything the pro-life movement is doing wrong and so i had this opportunity to speak with them about um ccpr strategy which we talked about i i think in actually episode two or three with jonathan van maren about why we use abortion victim photography super neat conversation um but it has definitely wet the the whistle as it were for getting back to activism we're getting out today super excited for that yeah i'm excited as well i'm going out tomorrow uh for the first time in a little bit because we've had some significant lockdowns here so tomorrow um by the time this recording is out god willing i'll have done the activism so perhaps next week i'll share some of the conversations that i've had 
Uh, we're excited again to continue this conversation with Jonathan and Neve. Uh, Jonathan Van Maren, the author of the book Patriots, and Neve Ivrian, who uh, started Youth Defense, uh, is working for the uh, Ireland's The Life Institute right now, uh, and has done so, so much incredible work defending and protecting pre-born children in Ireland. Uh, we cut the conversation off halfway last time, and we'll be diving in now once again. But before we do, Cam, you have a few things that you want to say before we dive into this conversation. Sure do. As I mentioned um, last week on the, on the episode, if you didn't catch it, we are doing our first Ask Me, or I guess Ask Us Anything, on Friday, March 5th um, at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, because we all know that Toronto is the center of the universe, um, even for those who don't like that fact. Anyhow, we're doing this first Ask Me Anything. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to be able to join us and ask us questions about our street activism, about what it's like working full-time in the movement, about what it's like running the podcast, about anything whatsoever, about how big of a fish Peter has caught um, in his lifetime of wrangling. Um, please join us. What do you got to do to be a part of that? You have to be one of our Patreon supporters. And so you got to sign up on Patreon. We'll have the link in the show notes. You got to sign up by Friday, February 26th. And so I know that's coming up. It's only a couple days from when we are posting this episode. But Please do sign up. This is going to be a really neat experience. You're going to talk to me. You're going to talk to um, Peter. And arguably the coolest part of the, the whole thing, our producer, Maddie Halleck, is going to be a part of the conversation as well. And so if you want to start your own podcast, you can ask questions to Maddie. He's an incredible guy. He's working with us full time or part-time, I guess, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Great dude. And so you can meet the three of us and ask whatever questions are burning in your heart to ask us. Um, yeah, that's Patreon. Oh, and one other thing, Peter, um, that I almost forgot. We have a summer internship that we run every year. Peter, that's how I got involved. That's how you got involved. That's how so many people in Canada's pro-life movement got involved in the first place. We've been running it for the last 11 years, and we are running it again this year. We're super excited. We know that there's going to be a few slight modifications to make sure that we're abiding by all of the remaining COVID protocol and whatnot, but we are still going to be reaching hundreds of thousands of people. You are going to get the opportunity to learn from some of the best pro-life apologists and trainers, people like Jonathan Van Maren, people like Ro uh, Micah Rosendahl, people like Peter and myself, where we're going to add ourselves into that list of world-class trainers as well, just for the sake of it. Ooh. Not only that, you're going to get a ton of access some experience under the mentorship and guidance of people like Alex Van der Brunhorst and Jer Hugheem um, and the rest of our incredible staff. And if you want to become a more capable, more competent, more compassionate pro-life leader, check out our, our internship. We'll throw the info in the show notes and we would love to have you either here in Calgary or over in Toronto for either two months or four months. We'd love for you to come for four months, but if you can only swing two months, we understand please check out our internship and be a part of a growing movement of people who are equipped to be pro-life leaders initiating change across the country. That's right. And and as you talk about the internship, sir, that is something I am very passionate about. That's one of my favorite projects here at the CCBR. And I'm really, really excited for this coming internship. So don't forget to apply. We'll put the, the link in our description or you can find it at endthekilling.ca, endthekilling.ca. Uh, to do an internship either in Toronto or in Calgary and to be equipped to defend preborn children. Not just be equipped, man, you are going to spend a significant amount of time on the streets reaching out to the culture. And you might be saying, ah, I'm an introvert, I can't really do that. 
Uh, I got to say, there's there's been a lot of introverts who have done the internship, and uh, there, there's a lot of mentoring that happens as well. There's a lot of, you know, one-on-one with the leaders, uh, conversations building up. And so there's no reason to be uh, to, to shy or nervous about it in the sense of there, there are going to be others who are walking along the, the journey with you. And you will have a good amount of people, like like you mentioned, Cam, Alex Venebreinhorst, and Jer Hugim, who will guide you every step of the way. So go check it out, andthekilling.ca. Without further ado, let's, let's dive into part two of our conversation with Jonathan Van Maren, author of Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, and Neve Ivrion, who is an activist and commentator in Ireland. Here it is. The difficulty we encountered was this, is that when Savita, Savita Halepinavo died, even though three subsequent inquiries showed that she had in fact died of sepsis, and that the Eighth Amendment did not prevent the doctors from intervening to save her life. They just didn't realise she had sepsis, they didn't realise her life was in danger. That's a very important distinction. In other words, what I'm saying is that in her case, the doctors were perfectly free under the Eighth Amendment to intervene and to deliver her baby. And that was not considered an abortion. It was never considered, those kind of interventions were never considered an abortion now because the intention there, of course, to save the life of the mother. But they had missed Savita's sepsis. They had missed 13 opportunities to see that she had sepsis with spikes in temperature, white blood, cell counts, everything like that. And it was one of those tragic cases that was immediately seized on by the Irish media. And they, they managed to establish this narrative in the minds of Irish people that Savita Halepinavra died because she couldn't get an abortion, that she died because of the Eighth Amendment. And in normal circumstances, it would have been the things like the canvas and the street sessions and media debates and all of that helps to, un to bring, to shine a light, to show the truth about, about those issues. It became extraordinarily difficult to do so in this case because the narrative that they were um, trying to establish, they had such power to do so with the media and they, it became like a barrage of propaganda that became very difficult for people to overcome. And then something else happened, I think, to help embed that narrative was that um, where previously the doctors in Ireland had been overwhelmingly pro-life, you had some doctors who were politically motivated who started to speak out to say, well, you know, the Eighth Amendment needs to go. If it wasn't for the Eighth Amendment, Savita Halepinava would have had medical intervention, even though that wasn't true. They were the only medical voices that the media wanted to give any time to. So we had like appalling instances during the referendum campaign itself, where you know when the yes vote started to slip, the media just shut down pro-life doctors, pro-life nurses, eminent experts, the people who had been the chair of the Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Four of them came out and signed a letter saying, "Look, this is not correct. This is not the medical. This is not medical. This is not a true interpretation of medical practice. Like Savita was entitled to the care that she needed." The media just effectively shut down those voices and only concentrated on the voices of pro-abortion doctors, and that became very difficult to overcome because, really, if you're an ordinary voter and you have met. John, you know, me or Johnson or any of you on the street, and you have been you have been convinced and impressed by the arguments we put forward, but then you go back and you look on TV that evening and you only hear pro-abortion medical experts saying, no, the fact of the matter is the Eighth Amendment needs to go. It becomes a, a matter of who do you believe then, you know? And that was, it was 
very difficult for the truth about that case to be heard, especially around the time of the vote in the referendum. Yeah, and, and that was key, that death of Savita Halapanavar. Um, and not only the Irish uh, media latched onto that, the media around mm. the world did, international media. And it, it, it became such a story that I remember one particular point when I was having a conversation about abortion on the streets of Toronto, someone used the case of Savita as justification for abortion. Um, here in Toronto, which, which I, I mean, is I, I find that pretty rare that people use examples and cases from elsewhere, but it became such a headline yeah. around the world. And, and what you're noting here is that um, she died of sepsis. Jonathan, you uh, outlined this in your book as well with uh, good support for that. Now, it's easy to look back 2020. We have 2020 vision on the things that, that happened in the past. This was a, a while ago, happened in 2012. But for, for you with youth defense, I mean, you had seen uh, the, the case of Baby X. You had seen Miss C and her story and um, the, the tragedy, you know, that was her story and how the media used her and then immediately dumped her and neglected her once she was no longer useful for them. Mm -hmm. um, but, but those stories hadn't changed the outcome of public opinion. It hadn't tipped the scales to turn people against the Eighth Amendment and the pro-life issue. Like the like the Savita case did when the the story of Savita first dropped, did youth defense and the pro life movement recognize that this was a different story, or how did you respond to this when it first came out? Well, we actually had this is a, a bit of a, a, a seeing into something else, but we actually had um, access to a conversation that we had stumbled on this Google group <laughs> chat group, and um, some abor abortion campaigners from Galway and Dublin were talking about Savita's case three days before it broke in the media. And they were talking about how they were going to use it. So we had some prior notice that the story was going to break. I suppose what was different in regard to this case from any of the other cases that had arisen was that a woman had died. Like a woman had died. And when, because the media were able to make her death all about abortion, rather than about paternal healthcare, or rather than about, rather than about sepsis, it had an enormous impact on how people felt about the case because people were made to feel guilty. People were told like, if you voted yes, if you supported the Eighth Amendment, you killed this woman. That's the kind of level of, of commentary, of hysteria you were looking at. Like you had some newspapers across the world in India, for example, saying that Ireland had murdered Savita Halepanan. Like it was very emotive, it was very, very aggressive, and um, the Irish people were berated for having a law in place which denied this woman an abortion, even though, as I said, the three inquiries showed that what was really at fault here was that the hospital was understaffed, and when you, when you don't, and, and this is still the case, this is still the case in Ireland where our maternal uh, healthcare um where our maternity hospitals are, are understaffed. And since abortion has been legalized in Ireland, we've had women dying in Irish maternity hospitals um, because, they, they, because the hospitals are, are understaffed, under-resourced, and that's affecting the term healthcare. And that was what was starting to affect medical leave back then. It was nothing, nothing, to do, nothing to do with the Eighth Amendment. But it, they used this, you know, it was a very um, uh, emotive case and it was manipulated and used very cleverly by the media and by abortion campaigners. We then managed to get pro-abortion doctors on board to reiterate that message over and over again. And it, it was a tipping point. It, it shifted public opinion substantially. 
Mm-hmm. Jonathan, I, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember like where you were when that news story broke. I remember, um, I, I don't know exactly when the news story broke, but I remember that um, our colleague Stephanie Gray Connors at the time was planning on um, representing CCBR at a conference in Vancouver in early November. This first hit the newsstands and she she canceled her trip out to Vancouver because she was needing to, to really wait by the phone to be able to offer a response to the inevitable media requests and whatnot coming out about this. And and you lay out in the book and, and we've spoken about this before about how the pro-life movement is often hamstrung by the fact that we have to wait for the facts to come out before we can offer any kind of solid commentary on what's going on, because the media would love nothing more than to be able to accuse pro-lifers of, of misrepresenting the case to, to benefit them. And yet that obviously isn't the case for pro-aborts, that they can publish whatever they want and not have to worry about any repercussions if they got all of the details wrong. Like you said, Neve, that, that there were 13 opportunities for, for um, Savito's life to be saved. Jonathan, maybe just a comment or two about um, how we as pro-lifers um, are hamstrung in, in the first place. But second of all, if there's any way that we can respond or how we navigate the fact that so much of the big media um, thrust is looking for these opportunities to advance pro-life, uh, pro-abortion legislation and sentiment, and yet we're constantly, in, in many ways, trying to play catch-up to convert people back to, no, no, this, this is the actual fact, or, or this is the truth here, you've been lied to again. I know that I, I asked a very similar question to Neve earlier, but maybe just a comment or two on that fact that pro-lifers often are forced to play catch-up because if we were to get any of the details wrong, it would just be a second area that media could jump on us for. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because I spent a lot of time, I read the books that were written about Savita and the whole works, and I'm not convinced, even in, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you always know what you, you should have done when you look back. I'm not convinced anything else could have been done on that story because this is the classic example of, you know, a lie gets all the way around the world before a truth has a chance to get its pants on. It, and I, I remember the same thing as you, Cam. I was in the Calgary office when we started getting phone calls, you know, demanding to know what we as a pro-life organization had to say about this girl who had died because we were advocating for the sorts of laws that had killed her. And there's a couple of a couple of points to uh, to make here that explain why it went as far as it did, besides everything Neve just said too, about how they were looking for the opportunity and all that. Uh, first of all, is that their narrative was simple and the pro-life response was complicated by definition, and it had to be. Right. They could just say the Eighth Amendment killed a woman. Yeah. We had to say, no, there was 13 times where you could have intervened. It was septicemia. It was this. No, the nurse didn't mean that it was a Catholic country and you couldn't do X, Y, Z. No, no. And so there was no way there was no way in a soundbite to respond to their soundbite. And we had the same problem in Canada. So I can't even imagine what it was like, uh, you know, in Ireland, especially during those those initial days. Um the other thing that, that made the story of Savita so powerful was that she was a foreigner and she wasn't Irish. So there was this, um, you know, that when, when, when the Irish were berated, they were berated for, you know, having laws that killed somebody else. Yeah. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't even an Irish woman sort of thing. Uh, and then finally, the last point was that they had a picture of a face for the X case. You know, there's no one, when, when somebody says the X case, the picture that pops up in my mind is the mock funeral that, that youth defense held for baby X, not a picture of a baby or a woman. Same thing with baby C. You know, we don't have an automatic image. You know, millions of people around the world, not in Ireland, if you say the word Savita, her face pops up in your mind immediately. People know who she is. And they have the, for a change, they had the power of imagery on their side. Usually we're the ones with tangible imagery and easy to understand slogans. And this time it was it was them who had, who had it. And I remember the, in Dublin the last week, 
during the campaign when some of the polls showed that their support was slipping. They just stopped putting up other signs and it was just pictures of Savita's face. In some of those whole neighborhoods, there was yeah. just pictures of Savita's face. There weren't even any words on it. It was just her face. I remember uh, watching a, a maintenance guy put up a sign to announce where a polling station, a voting station was, and less than 10 minutes later, there was a picture of Savita up right next to the sign. Like, just immediately um the final thing that I'll, I'll point out just so that the listeners do understand this this is not just pro-lifers backfilling right like the irish movement isn't saying like look no the, you know everybody was pro-life and 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 this is this is why this is why we lost because of savita um well, if you read kitty holland kitty holland's the journalist who who broke the story or more accurately had it handed to her by abortion activists uh, her mother was a well-known abortion campaigner as well if you read her book savita she states throughout the book uh, that that this was the turning point, that Savita is the reason that the abortion yeah. movement won. Uh, and she even admits in the book that an abortion wouldn't have saved uh, Savita, but then says that her characterization was accurate because she was simply reporting on what others said. So if you can find somebody who's willing to say an abortion were to save Savita, and then you quote them, uh, you know, then you're just reporting on what they said. And if millions of people happen to get the wrong idea so much the better for the cause that you not so privately hold. So I think it's important for people to realize that this isn't a bunch of pro-lifers saying, hey, you know what, Ireland was it was still largely pro-life until they were lied to. But the abortion campaigners themselves have written books detailing why this is the case. Yeah, like just to give you some idea of the, the kind of the scale around the misreporting, I remember uh, just after the referendum going into, so Ireland's a small country and we've got really one publicly funded um, TV station, RTE, okay, and they, there's another small virgin media there too, but really like Jonathan, you've been here, you understand this, like RTE is where everybody gets their news in Ireland. And we went into their news website and if you typed in Savita and abortion, you got 20,000 hits back on the website. If you typed in Savita and sepsis, you got 66. That's the scale of the misinformation. You know, it was absolutely enormous. And I remember we were talking to Tim Jackson recently, and we were talking about the fact that a year before Savita's death, a woman living in Ireland called Aisha Shatiria went from Dublin to a Mary Stokes abortion clinic in London. And they did a botched abortion on that woman. And she died, God love her, she bled to death in the back seat of a taxi that she'd been put into by the abortion clinic. Even though she was obviously in great distress and was bleeding, they put her into the back seat of that taxi and she died. Nobody in Ireland knows her name. Like, how tragic is that? Because she didn't, her death, she died because of an abortion. She went from Ireland to England and died because of an abortion. But no, the media didn't want to talk about that. Journalists didn't want anybody to know her name because that didn't fit their narrative. Their narrative was always that abortion is good for women and that the Eighth Amendment had to go. And Savita, you know, God be good to her. She shouldn't have died. It was a tragedy. Her death could be used to fit that narrative. So they wanted everyone to know Savita's name. They didn't want anybody to know Aisha Shatiria's name. And again, I come back to They don't care about women. They just wanted abortion legalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's something that, I mean, we, we've seen around the world, Jonathan, you mentioned how that was played out in Ireland, mm. uh, sorry, in, in Argentina as well. I'm curious, um, Neve, we, so pro-life guys have this new kind of series called humans of the pro-life movement, where we love to, to kind of get into the minds and, and see how, whether, whether it's current events or whether it's um, people's experiences within the pro-life movement, can you share a little bit about the, the days, weeks, and years that followed the, 
um, the news reporting around Savita. What was the what was the prevailing discussion within Ireland's pro-life movement, whether it's like the formal pro-life movement or even just conversations that you were having with people around you? Was this a matter of most people were just, you know what, this is another hill to fight on, but we'll, we'll do just as well with the Lord's blessing? Or was there starting to creep into the mentality of the Irish pro-life movement, the idea that how many more storms can we weather kind of thing? Because I'm sure that nobody was looking forward to it. Um, share a little bit on that. Yeah. I think, you see, once once Vita's death happened, everybody knew that a referendum was inevitable. You know, everybody knew that, they were, that the, the abortion campaigners now had kind of a political win behind them, the media behind them, and they were going to push and push until they got a referendum on this issue. So it was our job as a movement to get ready for that referendum and to try to establish... Um, campaigns and everything else prior to the referendum to try to undo some of the harm that had been caused by that case and to try to bring people again uh, to the pro-life position before the referendum was ever called. And it, it was, you know, I said it before, I say it again, like that pro-life people are the best people in the world, you know, and I, I don't mean, I'm not including myself in that, but the volunteers like who give their time for years, for, from 2013 to 2018, and they worked so hard you know just thousands of ordinary men women and children and who went out jonathan met them they went out on the doors people who had people who were terminally ill and still went out every night to canvas i mean that's an unusual example it was still it was still incredible people put their babies into slings and walked for like hours every night and did and did that for weeks on end you know people put their hands in their pockets and gave so that you could have campaigns and rallies and billboards and leaflets and social media advertising and everything else and they are extraordinary people and it's to their credit that they managed to run such a, a brilliant campaign but it was it, you know the forces arrayed against against the Eighth Amendment. But by the time it came to 2018, it wasn't David versus Goliath, it was David versus a literal army of Goliaths. And it just became too difficult for the truth to be heard. One of the things that people might not understand about the lead up to the referendum is that the government did something, uh, they established something called the Citizens' Assembly. And the Citizens' Assembly was, it's, it's a model that's been, I think, used in other countries as well. And, and it's always, held out as the model to follow by, by liberals, where you, you pick, supposedly at random, uh, Irish citizens or citizens of a country, and you, then they, they get to hear from experts, and then they vote on different possible outcomes. And this was followed, so this happened, and experts were brought in from abroad, All, most of them happened, of course, to be pro-abortion, and they convinced the citizens then to, that, that the Eighth Amendment should be something that should be put to a referendum. That was then followed immediately by a parliamentary hearing, which again went on for the best part of a month and experts were flown in from around the world and almost all of them were in favour of abortion. You had like, you know, B-pass, abortion providers in England coming over in the guise of being medical experts to tell the Irish people that they really had to legalise abortion or women were going to die. But the effect of that was a literal barrage of non-stop propaganda. It was that it, it became like the headlines in the news and the papers every single day for a very long period of time, for an extended period of time. And the relentless message all of the time was that the eighth is dangerous, the eighth is killing women, and the eighth has to change because of that. So what you saw over that period was 
opinion polls started to change, where you never previously had any, anything like majority support for abortion on request or abortion on demand. That was all, support that was always down in the 20s or at most the very early 30s. So it was nothing like the majority opinion in Ireland at all. And the government was acutely aware of that. But when they did this process, following the death of Sophia, they had this process where it became like a daily barrage of propaganda, dressed up as news conferences, or dressed up as news items every single day with medical experts, both in Ireland and abroad, you know, telling women that if the AIDS wasn't wasn't repealed, women were going to die. We then saw a massive shift in the opinion polls. They went so far as to say they couldn't find any pro-life doctors to come in and give and and give uh, expert evidence at the at these parliamentary hearings. And put the pro-life doctors were outraged and said, "We're right here. We're right here." But that was that was ignored as well. But it, it was a uh, it, it was. It was very carefully choreographed, like the, the stage management, all of that was, was very well done. But then it's easy to do these things very well when you have the, the political establishment, the media established in your back pocket, and who are setting the stage and who are running the campaign for you. Now, Jonathan was here, he don't, I think he'll agree with me when I say the Yes campaign were kind of, they were kind of lame. You know, they had all these colourful together for Yes posters and they weren't working. And at one stage, journalists were writing articles saying to them, like, get up off your backsides. The no side are stealing a march and they're first out with the posters. They're moving the opinion polls. And two weeks ahead of the vote, the opinion polls, the support for a Yes slipped below 50%. Okay? And you've never... Once, when that happens in Ireland, generally, you're, not, you're going to lose the referendum. Okay, it, 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 from previous referendums, you know that when the yes side, when the yes vote goes below 50% like that, usually you're going to lose the referendum. And just like what Jonathan said, what they did was then they went to India, they recorded a message from Savita Harap and Avra's parents. There were a thousand news reports about that video, a very emotive video calling for a yes vote so that there wouldn't be other deaths like Savita's death in the last week in the run up to, before the referendum. Pro-life voices were completely sidelined, and it became this absolute message of fear. You know, the women are going to die. They, 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 they forgot about all the colourful, happy, clappy, shout my abortion, you know, multicoloured poster stuff. That was all ditched, just like what Jonathan said. It became all about, we're going to be killing women if you, if you, if you don't vote yes. In other words, if you vote no, we're going to be killing women. You had the Prime Minister of the country coming out and saying, women are going to die, but there's not going to be... Um, a yes vote and in like that's a hard if you're an ordinary voter and you're hearing that message you know so you have, you have some nice polite person come to your door and explain the reality of it to you but then you're hearing the prime minister of your country you're hearing you're hearing you know these very emotive videos and you're hearing the, the only medical experts that you're allowed to hear saying to saying women are going to die because of you if you if you vote no and that's a very difficult message to to overcome. It wasn't true, but none of it was true. <laughs> like women, women have died since the AIDS was revealed in, in Irish maternal, uh, in Irish maternity hospitals, and of course, that that's never you know thrown back in abortion campaigns, but um, but it worked. Like the, the lie that got, got around the country ten times before the truth was chance to be speeds up. There's a there's a couple of other things that the listeners really should understand. One of which is that it wasn't just the creation of the Savita narrative, but the extent to which the media and then and Savita, or, and then um, 
There's the Fita. They did. They pumped out the Savita story, but they also tried to silence responses in really nefarious ways. Like so, when I was researching the book, um, I would actually go on to Life Institute's website and their Facebook page, and I'd watch their press conferences, most of which got live streamed. And I kind of watch them and take some notes so that I could describe them properly in the book. And then I'd go look at, at at the media coverage of those press conferences, and it was like it was so awful you almost had to laugh sometimes because it would be like you know here's like a whole bunch of nurses or midwives and, and different pro life spokespeople and you know and, and telling all these like, beautiful stories stories of overcoming hardship stories of what the Eighth Amendment and like, you know had done to Ireland what it meant for them and then the headline would be like you know pro life campaigners say women must keep rape babies or something like that like. In almost yeah. every instance, like the, the headlines bore no resemblance whatsoever. And, and you'd see journalists just basically wait, put their hand up, ask a question about rape or fatal fetal abnormality or one of those questions. And then like the whole article was based on the answer to that question, not on what actually took place. It was, it was really crazy to watch the press conferences and then read the coverage and then realize that for the people reading the papers and watching this kind of thing on RTE, like that's the reality that like the pro-life yeah. movement was getting strained through that. And that's what actually reached them. I think actually one of the conclusions I came to after my, after my research and Neve, you can contradict me if you think uh, that this is way out there, but was that because the pro-life movement had successfully won so many referendums on multiple issues uh, and prominent pro-life leaders had joined campaigns on other issues and, and actually worked on referenda on multiple other things is that at that point, I think the, the abortion movement, the progressives, they kind of were like, okay, we're not going to screw this one up. They could look at the pro-life movement's track record. They knew where the pro-life movement's strengths were. And they basically just stacked the deck to the greatest extent possible because they'd seen multiple uh, attempts previously fail and they were just determined to make sure that it didn't happen this time. So they were ready to lobby the tech companies to cut off the pro-life messaging. Um, they were ready to ensure that they weren't going to put out a message that would turn yeah. off you know, Middle Ireland. They were ready to ensure that when the pro-life movement came out with their strongest points, they could either blunt the effect or just straight up ensure it didn't get covered. Um, like I was only there for a few weeks, but I just remember reading newspaper accounts of, of things I was at, like that I was present for. And there was just such a chasm between what was reported and what actually took place <laughs> that it was crazy. And that's actually another one of the reasons I wanted to do the book was I, I remember talking to to somebody, one of the, the major pro-life activists that Neve and I both know, uh, and he said, like, what was this all for anyways after, you know, like the loss and, and you know, he was really heartbroken. And that this book, I, I, I hope, is an answer to that question of what it actually all was for. Because you might think, why would I read a book about a about a campaign that was only over a couple of years ago? You know, the newspapers wrote about this every day. Yeah, but they didn't actually write what was happening at any point. So we all know what the pro-choice movement was up for, if you read their funhouse mirror version of what the abortion movement did. But people don't really know what the pro-life movement did or how hard they worked or how hard they tried. And I think that story deserves to get told. And so you just... People can't understand just how insanely biased and how insanely yeah. deceitful the media really was until you actually check out the events and then look at the coverage and realize that just the two don't fit at all. One of the, you're so right. And I think Johnson's book does a brilliant job in capturing like the color and the energy and the commitment and the heart that was that was in the Save the Eighth campaign and in, the, in all the pro-life campaigns because people were astonishing that they gave it they're all to the very last minute, you know, and in truth, in truth, like the polls were swinging, you know, towards the pro-lifers, except for that the 
the media went right back to Project Fair. And I'm not saying they would have won it, but I don't think it would have, they, without Project Fair, which they rolled out so successfully in the last few days, I don't think they would have got the result they got because they went from being below 50 cent, 50% bouncing back up to that, you know, 66% uh, yes vote in favour in favour of appeal. And one of the stories you, you tell, Jonathan, is when we had that press conference where you had 150 nurses and midwives so these are the women who are intimately involved in providing maternal health care and they were super they're just superb senior mid midwives you know clinical nurse managers women with tremendous experience in caring for for, for, for pregnant women and their babies and they came in they, did, they had a, a press conference and they all spoke so eloquently they were really superb and it, it, the RTE, like, so again, the main news station came and recorded a piece and the reporter said to me, God, it's a very powerful piece, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good tonight on the news. It never appeared in the news. So I started ringing and rang the producer and eventually I was told, we didn't run that piece because we didn't have an equivalent from the yes side on that day. And it was just, it was that kind of thing, you know, the whole time. But sometimes I think I look back on it and, you know, People did say afterwards, my God, like we canvassed half the country, like 700,000 homes, you know. People worked so hard, the roadshows, the, the social media, everything, the, the spokes, and the, the pro-life spokespeople were brilliant. Like we, there was a famous debate, I think Jonathan, you were here for it, on the Claire Byrne show. And it was one of the few debates where there was an, an open, free and fair debate because abortion campaigners said, okay, for this campaign, we don't want these kind of open studio debates. We want one-to-ones uh, interviews. We don't want, you know, to have any cut across. And they got everything they wanted. The, the media said, oh, oh okay, well, that's, the way, that's the way we run all the debates too. And the abortion campaigners were saying, we want it all to be about personal stories. But, you know, as Maria Steve so famously said, dead babies tell no tales. They, don't, they can't share their personal stories. But um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry, in the middle of what I was saying there. We were, oh, we were talking about Bobby Johnson. About Project Fair and how they basically cut off your ability to communicate your message. Uh, and they even shut off the debates. After the debate you're referring to, um, they went to war again. Who was it mm -hmm. they were trying to keep off again? Um, Maria Steen? Maria Steen and, and John Monnan. So the people on the pro-life side, when they got to have an open and free debate on TV, like they, they won the debate hands down. They were, they were amazing. And you had, you had such incredible people, like in groups like Disability Voices for Life, you know, who parents of children who had Down syndrome or children who had life-limiting conditions. And they were so passionate and so brave in, in how they spoke, spoke out. And all of those messages struck a strong chord with Irish people. You know, because we had billboards up you know with a beautiful little boy called joseph of down syndrome saying 90 percent of people like this child are aborted in britain is that what you want here and people it made people feel you know, think deeply about the issue and think like this isn't what i want but then you know the, the the message that they were going to kill women by voting no i think um overcame a lot of that in the end but go back to Jonathan, what we were saying about you know people was it worth it? Was all of the work worth it? And it, it was, of course it was, because all of those conversations that were had, well, first of all, all of the lies that were saved was such an incredible thing. And like, I'm, I'm so proud of that, you know, as an Irish person, I'm so proud that my country, for all our faults, wherever, wherever we might have done now, that we, we stood against abortion for 30, 40 years, long after everybody else in Europe had, had capitulated to it. And I'm so proud that, that, all, that all of those lives were saved. And that's just the credit of all those people you know, who fought so hard and 
such an incredibly self-sacrificing altruistic way because there was no there was no benefit to them for this. They just wanted to protect mothers and babies from abortion, and and they did it. They did it very effectively. But I do think as well that all of the conversations that were had, even in the referendum campaign, even if at the end of the day people were pushed to vote yes, I think. You know, and you see a lot of people, you know, posting on social media saying, now, oh God, I, when they hear the terrible things that have happened since, like last year, in 2019, there were 6,666 abortions. And you see a lot of people expressing like their shock and their horror at that figure and saying, God, I didn't realize this was going to happen when I voted yes. You know, I, I thought it was about protecting women in very vulnerable circumstances or or about not having another case like Savita. So you're already seeing abortion regret out there. And a lot of those people will have had conversations, you know, with the, with, with the pro-life movement, with the pro-life canvassers. And I think that they will have sown seeds that will bear fruit in the long term because... We have to look to the long term now. You know, and we've said that's why we've set up things like ripped media and why we're regrouping, re-strategizing, reorganizing and, and looking to, to everywhere else. Because I think all of us should know that this is a global issue and there's a global playbook that abortion campaigners use. And that global playbook is all about fear and emotion and looking at hard cases and, and shifting funding around the world to try to bully countries like Ireland and to bully countries like Honduras as well, who are so bravely stand, standing up to them. But we need to, we need to understand, understand that too. Like one more chance and share, share our story, share, share our own history so that people understand why, what our motivations are and how important it was to protect children whenever, whenever we could, but also to learn from each other and to learn from each other's strategies and so that when we need to say, okay, what could we have done better here or, or what will work for us going forward? Because it easy, I think it's easy to think sometimes, look, we lost. Is there any point? But of course there is. Of course there is. You can, every time you go out there and do a street session or, or run something online or do something in a school or on a campus, every single time you do it, you're changing somebody's heart, you're changing somebody's minds, you're potentially saving a life. And that's absolutely worthwhile. Amen. And, and I just want to say that there's a lot more to say about the Savita case and the media's role and all of those things. And for those of you who are listening, you can find it in the book, Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, which you can find at thebridgehead.ca forward slash shop. Thebridgehead.ca forward slash shop. All right, Neve, let's let's go back to the 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 moment or the 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 week around the referendum. You guys um, really canvassed the entire nation. Uh, with the pro-life message, sharing with people the reality of abortion, the truth about abortion, and the implication of what getting rid of the Eighth Amendment would do for the nation of Ireland. Now, um, I, I guess I have a, f- a few questions here, but could you, do you have any any stories perhaps, or do you want to give any shout-outs to some of the, the, I mean, there are a lot of heroes, I'm sure, but but some of the leaders behind the movement to save the Eighth Amendment. And could you speak a little bit to that moment or that day after the referendum when you found out the results and what what you as a, 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 a an activist yourself and what you as a movement were feeling mm-hmm. on the heels of the, the loss of the Eighth Amendment? Well, you know, there were so many heroes that I'm, I'm not going to start naming them because, you know, as Johnson discovered when we, when we, when we started to, put, to compile a list of names to the back of the book, there's literally thousands, <laughs> literally thousands, and they were, they were incredible. And I think they felt 
devastated because you see they had gone to the doors and they had gone to the streets and they had talked to so many people and what they found at the doors was that people were saying yeah I, I like i don't like abortion abortion is a bad thing Do you know abortion is not something that i feel is is a public good and because of that then people believed that um there would there would be a no vote because they had had so many of those conversations and you know people said to me they lied to us they just lied to us at the door and afterwards i said no they didn't really to be honest i think a lot of people who voted yes did so with half-heartedly or even less you know even it, with, with great difficulty and they did so because i think they were bullied into it you know so when they said to people at the door i know i, I don't want ireland to be like england i don't want 90 percent of our babies with down syndrome to be aborted i don't want our abortion rates to go through the roof i do think abortion is a terrible thing i think that was sincere it was sincere but they, they voted the wrong way you know mm -hmm. and because it's been said to us often since like you lost you know and and the other side won and Therefore, your, your, it means your argument is not compelling. But to me, that completely misses the point. I, I, if 99% if of people had voted for abortion, they would still be wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, it's sometimes the majority is wrong. And sometimes, you know, we've seen this so often in the past. People have supported terrible things like slavery, you know, like appalling cruelty in the past. And they were wrong just because they were in the majority uh, it doesn't mean they were wrong. There's a famous quote from T. Booker Washington says that, you know, that, that uh, um, just because you're in the majority doesn't mean that you're in the right. And mm -hmm. that was the way it, it was in Ireland. And people were completely and absolutely brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. Do you know, like Jonathan will notice. <laughs> I think I had a tearful conversation with Jonathan a, a few days later. And I think they felt crushed because it, it wasn't just like, it wasn't a campaign, you know, a political campaign. It wasn't, I've, fought on many political campaigns. You lose those so what, like, do you know what I mean? This was about more than that. This was um, the Irish people, I think, abandoning, like, the you know, the protection that they gave to the most vulnerable of all of, all of our citizens. And there was a an indifference and a, and a cruelty, I think, in the vote that, that people found devastating and really upsetting. And then, of course, you had this disgusting spectacle of people singing and dancing at Dublin Castle. You know, the same Prime Minister who had said before the vote, uh, there's going to be no celebrations of this passes because abortion isn't something you celebrate, was there like practically dancing in conga lines, but all of the rest of them, you know, gleeful about the fact that they had legalised uh, the killing of unborn children. And that was, that was very difficult, I think, for pro-life activists to see. But, you know, John McGurk, who's... Um, our campaign spokesman wrote this marvellous piece afterwards where he said the next day all of those people would be miserable again because it wasn't the Eighth Amendment that made, that, that made them miserable. It was this general dissatisfaction that liberals and progressives have with life. That something else is always to blame for, for, their, for, their, for their misery. And he's completely correct. Completely correct. The same people are back on Twitter and Facebook the next day saying something else is causing, is oppressing them or, or disturbing them or causing their life to be, you know, not as good as it should be. And um, I suppose people were, were brokenhearted, you know, to think that something we had always imagined, we always knew to be so dreadful was now going to be happening in Ireland. And Remember, people came together, you know, to to support and to 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 comfort each other, and 
it was very difficult and it was very difficult i think to try to to come to terms with it but tim jackson wrote something too at the time where he said that um at the end of the day like who will inherit this country and he said you know who will inherit it like those of us who who love and welcome all of our children or those who think they can be destroyed by abortion as a matter of choice and i think that that was very true you know at the at the end of the day the future belongs to those, I think, who recognise that everybody has a right to life, simply because they, they, won't, they won't destroy their own children. And in doing so, they, they preserve their own future. Might be a long time coming, and we've a lot of work to do in the meantime in terms of establishing a new media, in terms of making the movement strong, in terms of regaining political power, which the, the, the vote in the referendum, I think, completely took away from the movement. But, but um, that's, that, that's what... I think is allowing the movement to regroup and to continue that knowledge that at the end of the day, you have to fight for what's right, even if you're in the minority, because it's still right, it's still the right thing to do. And B, that the future I think belongs to those of us who don't kill our children. Yeah, and and that that message that you uh, uh, mentioned a few times from Tim Jackson, Jonathan has it in his book. Um, one of the most beautiful mm. and most powerful posts that I've ever seen. I, I can't believe that, that that was posted on Facebook and not like carved into stone somewhere. Um, I hope that one day it is carved <laughs> into stone. Um, and and yeah. Eve, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain in just a moment, a little bit further about. Whether it was naivety, whether it was ignorance of the people that you talked to door, uh, door by door saying, you know what, I, I don't want this, but what the, the media was feeding them about this, this amendment wasn't going to completely legalize abortion. It wasn't going to be a free for all. It was going to be very restricted and how mm. they were lied to in that way. But Jonathan, I'd, I'd love to, to tap into your experience first, though, actually, because not only were you the author, not only are you the author of this book, but you also parachuted in for um, two of the most intense weeks of the Save the Eighth campaign. And so it wasn't just an outsider looking in, but rather somebody who was a part of it, as Neva's mentioned, interacting with the the courageous uh, women and men who were making such profound sacrifices in defense of life. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience there in Ireland. I don't know who it was to book your plane tickets, but but to leave on the morning of the referendum, um, I, I'm sure that you, you were questioning that decision when you were flying out, but share a little bit about your time in those two weeks leading up to the date of the referendum and what it was like standing shoulder to shoulder with these incredible pro-life heroes. Well, to be honest, uh, we booked a flight out uh, on purpose because um, I felt like it would be a blast to say if, uh, well, you know, when, when it's a victory party, the more the merrier. But I did feel and still do feel now after having talked to uh, almost, I think, uh, 15 or 16 people from about that night and, and, and how it was in the week that followed. And I said this in the book, and I do feel this way, that it would have been kind of like being a stranger at a family funeral, that there were the people were grieving something that I could, I could understand to a, uh, to a degree, but not fully. And it just wouldn't have been appropriate for, for, for me to be there. Uh, I really did feel that way. And that's why we booked the ticket, ticket out. Um, and, and, and so I am, I am glad I wasn't there just be, just for that reason, even though I, I did I did message everybody. I didn't want to intrude on people's grief because it was both personal and it was also connected to to you know how they felt about Ireland and all these things in a way that I couldn't fully understand. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book actually was because of the people that I that I was on the 
on the campaign trail with because the, the media coverage just pissed me off uh, because I'm like, this bears no resemblance whatsoever to any of the people I've been spending time with at all. Um, there was a, I met a guy who, who, uh, who sold his, his car dealership and took four months off before his next job just to focus on the eighth. I met old yeah. people who could barely walk. They were kind of like stiff leggedly walking door to door. I met people that were skipping classes just prior to midterm exams, um, in order to do it a uh, four or five of them. Actually, I met people who had taken extended leave off of their job to do this. And the important thing to realize is that, as Neve just pointed out, they're getting smeared by the media. They're getting smeared by the press. Every international institution on the globe hates their guts. Uh, they're losing money, not making money doing it. And they were doing it anyway. Um, yeah. And and this is, pro-life work, especially in the context of that campaign, was it's one of the few examples of altruism I've ever seen, right? This wasn't jetting off to Africa to take selfies and pretend that your tropical vacation was humanitarian, right? This is like people hate your guts. They're yelling at you. You're in your own country. Um, you're doing something you're going to get no thanks for. And even the people you might save aren't going to thank you at the end of the day because they're never going to yeah. know what you did to protect them. And indeed, you know, to highlight how it was thankless, you know, there's there's thousands of people who were alive because of the Eighth Amendment that voted to repeal it. Right. Um, that, that was sort of part of the, the tragic irony of it all. And so I just I felt offended on, on their behalf. And I really did feel like somebody should should tell the story. Um, I was kind of. It took me three or four days, and I, I did realize talking to some of them, and I could name them, but I won't embarrass them, that there was sort of something different about the extent to which they believed they could really pull it off. Like, I do think that living, like, growing up in a country, like, abortion's been legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy, you know, right up until birth, since before the three of us were born in Canada. We never experienced what it was like to be proud of Canada, and, you know... You know, you're, you're, you're proud of Canada initially, and then sort of life is a, is a series of disappointing discoveries. Um, and so to, to meet people who, who like actually believe that their nation had this sort of fundamental goodness about it was, was quite something. So well, the experiences were just really, really incredible. Um, and honestly, just getting to be there just for a, just for a few weeks, is it, I feel really privileged that I got to be a part of it and to meet all of those people and to tell their story. But you did it brilliantly. All right, Neve, you read this book by Jonathan, Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. Um, Jonathan's given some really good pitches for this book just by some of the things he's been talking about. Could you give us uh, and our listeners a pitch for why they should read this new book from Jonathan? So if you haven't got a copy of Jonathan Von Maren's book, Patriots, I urge you to buy one today. It's a marvellous telling, brilliantly told, brilliantly written by Jonathan of the fight for life in Ireland and how it succeeded for more than 30 years in protecting unborn babies and their mothers and in saving hundreds of thousands of lives. And get your copy today. Jonathan's a brilliant writer. You know, you guys know this. You know, I, I always think he's the most prolific writer I've ever met. <laughs> Every day he's got some new amazing blog up or five amazing blogs up and big long pieces about historical things. Super interesting. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful book because I think you managed to capture from your interactions with people and the, some of the stories you shared, like exactly the heart and the spirit of the movement. You know, that these, these are incredible people and they still are because to come back from that defeat... And regroup and to say, no, we're going to we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep fighting for what's right, you know, because now in Ireland, what we have, of course, is, is abortion is legal. The numbers are going, are going up just exactly the same way. We, I mean, no, nobody wants to be right about this. Nobody wants to say, look, we told you so when you're looking at these awful, appalling numbers. But you know, why would it be different from anywhere else? And you ha already have had this terrible, tragic case 
just again, again, as as the, the group Disability Voices for Life warned during the referendum, where um, doctors mistakenly diagnosed a child with trisomy 18, advised the, the, the parents, the parents said that they were totally nudged, pushed towards an abortion, and then afterwards found out that the baby was perfectly healthy. And that happened, you know, within three months of, of the abortion legislation being passed. So I think you could look at all of that and, you know, look at the vote, look at everything that's happened since and just say, I'm going to walk away from this fight. And to the absolute credit of the kind of people that Jonathan met when, when he was here, that they, that they, that they, they want to keep, they want to keep doing this work because they know how vital and how important it is. And because they know it's the right thing to do. And they're, they're brilliant. You know, they're, they're really amazing. They, they, they fought, they fought like what's what's the saying? You, you fight to the last ditch, is it? <laughs> you know, they fought to the last ditch, and and, and they uh, they persevered until the until the very last minute. And if if they were beaten, it wasn't because of anything they said or did. It was because like it just became impossible for the for the truth to to be heard. But culture swings happen, and culture swings happen in reverse as well. You know, and people are mindful of that too, and they're mindful that our, our job is to keep changing the culture. Guys, I actually have to go and cook the dinner. Is that okay? Is that okay? Have we covered everything? Yes, no, that that's totally understandable. Um, we got a couple more questions for Jonathan here, but I, I think that works perfectly. Thank you so so much for your time, Neve. No, thank you guys so much. It was lovely to chat with you. I like we could probably spend six hours talking about all of this because so many lovely stories and everything. But uh, it's difficult to get through it all. But thank you so much. Most welcome. God bless you guys. Thank you. All right, moving on to your book, Jonathan Patriots. The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. You mentioned one of the reasons that you wanted to write this, or you felt the need to write this, and that is that pro-lifers need to tell their own stories. Pro-lifers don't um, need to, you know, go to Netflix or go to the, the mainstream media to learn what's happening in their movement and to learn about their own heroes in ways that really don't depict the real lives of those heroes or the work that they've done. And so what, what you talk about is the importance of pro-lifers telling the stories of pro-life heroes and pro-life history and what happened um, and what really happened. I mean, I think one of the things that you guys have highlighted is that the mainstream media is not concerned for truth as much as it is concerned for pushing the narrative that they desire to push. And so um, I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit more, but um, could you share a little bit about when you first heard about uh, youth defense and the work that Neve is doing and um, why... Like, Kind of like why you took such, you know, note to it so much so that you wanted to write this book. Well, so, so interestingly, like besides what I, I just mentioned previously about seeing the difference between the people that I was working with on the ground and how they were portrayed. Honestly, uh, the idea for a, a book didn't surface right away. Uh, as, as both of you know, I, I do a lot of the strategy for CCBR. And one of the things that I do to sort of, sort of help form our strategy is just a ton of research to find out what other people are doing. And the question I actually started researching was, is it possible to have a country with a really restrictive abortion regime after a sexual revolution has taken place? Because before the eighth amendment fell, it looked like, yeah, look, they can have, they have a comprehensive welfare system. There aren't back alley abortions. Um, they've got amazing maternal health care and, They've got, you know, protection for preborn children. After the Eighth Amendment, with everybody talking about how inevitable it was that the Eighth Amendment was going to fall in a post-sexual revolution Ireland, uh, I was like, okay, well, it's important for strategic reasons to understand how the abortion activists won this fight. 
Um, and so I started doing the research and I just started finding out all these crazy and hilarious and incredible things that youth defense had done over the years. Like they were just phenomenal at making sure the media paid attention to them when the media didn't want to pay any attention to them. So like my favorite story was what, and I'm going to, I'm going to maul his name. So I'll just skip his name. It's in the book. Anyways, it was one of the, uh, one of the better known Irish prime ministers. And this is in the mid nineties. And he was launching this, you know, his, his, his new strategy, new national vision for Ireland. And uh, the pro-lifers wanted him to address the abortion issue and wanted him to promise that he wasn't going to legislate uh, for the legalization of abortion. So like, at his nationally televised convention, while he's giving his speech, they had like a dozen pro-life activists planted throughout the audience. And, you know, they had the one jump out onto the stage, you know, with a banner about abortion and then security would take him down and uh, the prime minister would start a speech again and boom, the next guy would pop up like a jack in the box. So security spent like the first 45 minutes of the speech playing whack-a-mole, trying to find out where the pro-lifers were popping up and then like violently escorting them from the conference. But like, I I found the original airing of this on YouTube. Somebody had uploaded it and like, there's whole sections of this prime minister's speech, his big speech that you just actually the announcer speaking over him to let the viewers know what's going on like what all the craziness is and so just the the creativity the dedication the passion the willing to pretty much put up with anything um once i started researching in the into the in in the irish movement i really kind of got carried away by a lot of the cool stuff they did to be honest Mm -hmm. and and so building on then on that then i'm sure there's a lot of stuff that you can take away and and i've seen obviously some of that be instituted here in canada at ccbr the work that we're doing um to change minds and save lives on street corners and doorsteps Mm -hmm. what this book obviously isn't just for Canadians. It's not just for the Irish. It's for everybody who is fighting for life to to learn our own history. Yeah. And also, I'm sure there's some lessons that we can take going forward. What what can we learn from the pro-life uh, movement there in Ireland that isn't just a history lesson that is interesting? We nod our heads and, and we chuckle at these these crazy stories that you outlined so well in the book. What can we actually take away from this to make sure that there are more lives that are saved because of the work that people like Neve and countless others in Ireland were able to do. There aren't many nations exactly like Ireland at this point, but what can we take away from Mm. what youth defense and other organizations did to save lives? Education is everything and boots on the ground is paramount. Uh, At the end of the day, like Neve said this too, you can have an amazing social media presence. You can have a great political lobbyist, but boots on the ground are the thing that wins because It's not just impressive that Ireland hung on to the Eighth Amendment for 35 years. What's really impressive is that they hung on to a pro-life majority for 35 years. That right up until Savita, the vast majority of the Irish population opposed abortion. Why? Because roadshows were happening every summer, going to all these different towns and cities because they were door knocking for years because they had what they called street sessions, constantly showing people what abortion actually was. They used abortion victim photography. At one point, they actually postcarded all of Ireland, like dropped pamphlets in, in literally every mailbox. And so that's that's how they saved 250,000 babies. Uh, that's a low estimate, by the way. And that's what the rest of us need to take away from it, is that they hung on to their pro-life majority. And I don't I don't think that retaking the pro-life majority in Ireland is unachievable with a boots-on-the-ground uh, boots approach. Because on one hand, people look at, at the loss and say, oh, look how tragic that is. On the other hand, from, from where I'm sitting here in Canada with you guys, 
like over 30% of the population voting to keep abortion illegal in every single circumstance does not strike me as a bad place to start. Um, it's not what it was, but it's still in a, they're, they're still in a substantially better position uh, than almost any other European nation uh, or Western nation. So there's a, lo- there's a lot of reasons for optimism. Uh, once, you know, the dust settles, I think there is a lot of reasons for optimism. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that I want to follow up on that, it, reading through this book as well, it really, it it made me realize just how much could be done. And what I mean by that, like, um, I, I don't want to throw too much shade at the pro-life movement in Canada, but when, when we did the No to Trudeau campaign back in 2015, we dropped a million postcards basically in mailboxes across the country. And this was, I felt like this was unprecedented, that, that nobody had ever achieved a campaign ever oh, in the history of ever to 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 this magnitude and yet i'm reading in here that yeah they they dropped off like six million um six million lit drops and and they had tens of thousands of people out door knocking evening after evening they held three um basically march for lives within four months of each other and they got like ten thousand people out to the the smallest one and then fifty thousand people and then a hundred thousand people like i i think of canada and i think of you know what we're we're doing so well we're getting so many people involved which is like a significant exactly exactly and and i i just think that we in canada can't be complacent and and think oh we're doing so well because we're getting 50 interns to ccbr um ireland has been getting hundreds and hundreds of people equivalent to interns for a very long time there's a lot that we can learn from how high the bar has been set in ireland is that fair to say oh no absolutely that's why i think their story is inspiring not in a stupid motivational poster with a sunset sort of way i mean inspiring and like okay Look at what they managed to pull off. Um, we should be able to pull this off as well, or we should be aiming that high at a bare minimum, right? We should look at how did Ireland manage to hang out to their pro-life majority for 35 years, and then how do we start building one that looks like that one did? Um, and, you know, Canada Canada has... So the difficulty in Canada, of course, is the geography. Um you can drive across Ireland in three and a half hours, which makes things substantially easier when you're trying to reach massive amounts of people. But again, they were, they were boots on the ground when abortion was illegal. And I, I don't think there's any reason other countries can't emulate what they were doing. And so for countries like Honduras, that means emulating what they did in 1983 for countries like us. It means emulating what they did from 1983 all the way through to 2018. Mm-hmm. One last point for me. And, and I hate to do this because it's a bit of a spoiler. This is, Far and away, my favorite quote from the book, Jonathan. I want to get um, you to unpack it a little bit more. I'm going to read it here. It's a little bit longer. So for everyone in the audience, please hang in there. But I think that this really describes a lot of where we need to go as the pro-life movement. This is something that we talked about at our strategic planning retreat in September 2020. Um, and, And here's the quote, Jonathan. You say, perhaps it is not hope that is necessary because hope can fade or die, at least when it is rooted in in faith in fellow man. Hope in some ways must be given. And perhaps what is needed instead is defiance, a full-throated rebellion against evil and destruction of the culture of death that threatens the innocent and an absolute refusal to live a normal life in the face of this betrayal. Jonathan, this this provokes so many thoughts in my mind. Can you just unpack that? I'm sure that we could do a whole episode on that, but just one thought on that as we come towards our wrap-up here. When people say they have hope for this or that reason, they usually mean that, you know, victory is in sight or that victory is achievable. And I really do think that when it comes to the pro-life movement, when you look at the history of Ireland's movement, when you look at, um, you know, the history of activists like Joe Scheidler, who you mentioned on the pulse here uh, just just a little while ago, 
I think that what we really have to do looking forward is commit ourselves to fighting a culture of death, regardless of whether or not we get that Wilberforce moment, that Abraham Lincoln moment, you know, that Martin Luther King Jr. moment where he realizes the Voting Rights Act is going to get passed, that we, we're doing this to save lives day by day, uh, that every day the country should get a little bit more pro-life, but that saving lives is enough. Because talking to a lot of the, the uh, Irish pro-lifers, uh, after the referendum, when I was interviewing them for the book, a lot of them were still, you know, feeling a lot of despair, feeling a lot of grief. Um, and they would say, like, I just feel so hopeless. Um, and then I remember talking to one of them, Neve's sister, actually, Una, who just got really angry. And then she said, but, but we are not going to let them win. They're not Irish. We're Irish, right? We represent what Ireland actually is. I'm like, that's it. Even though she has no illusion that the eighth is going to pop back up in five years or that this is going to be a short fight or that, you know, we're going to do a U-turn and we're going to, we're going to get back to where we were. She just like, like the tone in her voice, which I, I couldn't totally convey in the book when I was quoting it, but like, it's going to be like a podcast or something like the way she said it. Um, I was like that, that's the attitude that we need. That's the attitude that we need. Like every day you wake up and it's, it's the worst day the abortion activists have ever had because you just got up in the morning again and you're not going to let them get away with it. And you're going to save as many lives as you can. And there's going to be fewer people. Um, there's going to be fewer people grieving because you woke up. There'll be more babies saved because you woke up. And so I think that's, that's one of the things, one of the things that, that you can really take away from that. So it's just when people use hope, it's like, do you think we can win? When you talk about defiance, it's like, it, it doesn't actually matter whether we win or not. We're going to be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And we're going to do this because this absolutely needs to be done. And innocent little children are depending on us. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, Jonathan, uh, one last thing for you um, from, from what we've learned um, and, uh, and from writing this book. There are people listening to this now thinking, you know, this is, this is specifically Ireland. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in here, a lot of Irish history. Um, give one, one more reason, one more time. Why should people who are not from Ireland, people who are involved in the pro-life movement, why should they pick this book up? And why is it a really, really useful and helpful resource for us as a pro-life movement? You know, beyond the, uh, the, the, the helpfulness and, and, and the resource aspect we talked about before, I honestly think it's just a really great story. Um, like they were the coolest people to hang out with. They did incredible things. If you're into politics, what they pulled off in getting the eighth amendment in was referred to by one Irish journalist as the, one of the greatest political coups of the 20th century. Um, if you're into activism, uh, they pulled off stuff that will actually have you laughing out loud. If, if you want to be inspired by dedicated defenders of human rights, I think they're bar none. Um, I don't think anybody does it better than they did it. Um, and if you want to read a story about defiance in the face of defeat, this is that story. So I think there's a lot of universal elements to the story uh, that will appeal to people for a wide range of reasons. But fundamentally, if we're going to tell the story of, of pro-life and pro-family heroes, we have to tell good stories. They can't be boring stories. And I think this one's a, a, a pretty fascinating and pretty invigorating uh, story because of the people that I'm telling the story about. Beautiful. I completely agree. Having read this book, I know Cam agrees as well as he's nodding vig vigorously into the camera right now. Jonathan and Neve, thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation about the Irish pro-life movement, about the Eighth Amendment, and uh, and about the great work that has been done. You bet. Thanks for having me, guys. That is our conversation with Neve Eve Rion and Jonathan Van Maren about the story of Ireland's pro-life movement. I don't, I don't know about you. I'm I am motivated to read this book once again. And and 
we want to encourage you to pick it up as well. There are so many things you can learn about the Irish pro-life movement. And it's all, an all-around, as Jonathan mentioned, an all-around phenomenal story. So go check it out. Patriots, the untold story of Ireland's pro-life movement. You can find it thebridgehead.ca forward slash shop. But Cam, Cam, there's also a way to win this book, isn't there? There sure is. We want to invite you to give us a rating, give us a comment. I know that some of your podcast catchers are not um, set up for ratings and comments. I'm pretty sure that you can't do that on Spotify. If you could add a comment and a rating on a a catcher that does let you do comments and and ratings. We would super appreciate that. That allows the algorithms to bump the pro-life guys up further and further to catch more and more people who are searching on how to be um, more active in various social causes and whatnot. We want Christians, non-Christians, whoever it is um, who supports Preborn children through all of the stages. We want them to be checking out our show, and so um, by you commenting and and leaving ratings, not only do we bump up the algorithms, but also you can win a copy, a signed copy, I should say, a signed copy of this book, Patriots, signed by Jonathan Van Maren himself. Um, this is a rare feat, as many of you who know Jonathan would know. Jonathan hates signing books. He's one of the most humble, one of the um, he loves the idea of flying under the radar. He's such a humble man, and I, I appreciate him for that. He hates signing books. He hates having any kind of the limelight on him, but he's willing to do that for you because that will hopefully incentivize many of you to enter into this draw to win a signed copy of Patriots, the untold story of Ireland's pro-life movement. Give us a comment. Give us a rating on whatever podcast catcher is most convenient to do so, and we will um, announce the winner on our social media and probably during the next podcast episode as well. That's right. And uh, I-, I wasn't totally listening, Cam, but if you could if you could send us a screenshot of your comment just so that we don't miss it, you can do that by sending us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever um, you can find us. Email, email at prolifeguys.com on our website, prolifeguys.com. So do that. Also, uh, as Cam mentioned earlier on, become a patron of the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Help us to continue bringing the truth about abortion to the airwaves, as it were, and uh, help us to continue to equip others to be good and effective and winsome defenders and advocates of preborn children. That's it for us. We hope you enjoyed this two-part conversation. Let us know what you think because we always love hearing from you all. We always love he- hearing your feedback. Oh, another thing. We got we got a few emails uh, the other day uh, of people who ha- they had conversations because of things they learned on the podcast and just had a few questions about how to proceed in, in particular scenarios. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. That is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, one of the main reasons. And so if you too have, have you know, had a conversation about abortion and something came up that you weren't really sure how to respond to or, or didn't, kind of understand what was going on in the conversation do reach out to us there's a good chance we've had that conversation already uh in the time that we spend on the streets and we will do what we can to to help you uh perhaps give you apologetic tools perhaps guide you to a resource that will help you uh have those good conversations about abortion so thanks for reaching out to us to those of you who did and thank you so much uh for those of you who are having conversations defending pre-born children that's it for us this week. Thank you so much. Don't forget to tune into The Pulse. 
which is a monthly episode, a monthly roundup of important and interesting pro-life news, abortion-related news from around the world from a pro-life perspective, and Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, where we have conversations with more of these unsung heroes. Check it out, YouTube, or your favorite podcast catcher, or our website, www.prolifeguys.com. Peace out, everyone. Have a great week, and we hope you tune in again next time. Okay, I'm going to do that again, because uh, <laughs> I'm putting stresses on weird parts. <laughs> You're just so intense. There were... <laughs> I know I I've when I listen to myself so when I speak I feel like I'm being more intense than I am and then when I listen to myself sometimes it sounds very monotone so I, I in my mind I gotta like spice it up a little you know like whew, bounce in my seat maybe stand up and jump alright <laughs> watch Maddie's gonna use this at, uh, at the end of an episode or something okay